0: hey there conceders thank you once again for joining dan and i to hear our thoughts on some of your favorite films well actually this week there is a strong chance that this is not one of your favorites and that's because we're going to dive deep taking apart an extremely divisive film so if you're one of those folks who absolutely cannot stand this movie welcome to the show because this episode of concessions is for you now a Quick disclaimer, Dan and I usually go to some lengths to record these episodes with the very same audio setup, same microphones, same software, same editing suite. With this week's episode, however, due to events outside of our control, I had to dial into the recording software using my phone. And the result is, I sound like I'm talking to Dan on the phone. So you've got Dan sounding nice and pristine and beautiful as always, and myself sounding a bit staticky or far away as it turns out that dichotomy is actually very on theme for our discussion of this film and you'll find out what i mean soon enough as always if you like the show give us a like a follow or a rating wherever you're listening to the show also give us a follow online dan is on x at dan concedes and i'm on threads at jared concessions now once again, join us as we reflect on, deconstruct, and generally wig out over Kyle Edward Ball's analog nightmare come to life, Skinnamarink. Skinnamarinky-dinky-dink, Skinnamarinky-doo, I love you.
1: Skinnamarinky-dinky-dink, Skinnamarinky-doo, I-
0: welcome to concessions i'm jared
1: and i'm dan and jared usually in the background don't you have like windows and doors and stuff back there
0: my god my doors and windows are gone
1: wait a minute where are my parents wait where where are my parents mom mom dad love me (laughs) well i'm sure wherever
0: they are they're happy you know what makes me happy drinking beer Oh,
1: that's nice. What are you
0: drinking over there, Dan?
1: I'm uh doing a salute to the true motherland up in the Northwest. I got Fremont's uh, Lush India Pale Ale. That I got a nice tall glass that I might have stolen a b- from a bar that I worked at a few years ago.
0: Oh, that is gorgeous. That's a nice pour. It's a very nice pour you've, d- you've done there.
1: I'm a trained professional. What you got, And what you got over there?
0: I need to make sure I get this right because I went to H Mart today just for funsies. And picked out a beer whilst there. And so this is a Baron Hayakunin Bakushu Schwartz.
1: Oh, well, yeah, of course. The Bakushu Schwartz. I
0: know that one. I believe that it is a dark wheat ale. <laughs> it is from Japan. I don't understand the words on the bottle, but it has a picture of wheat. I think it's wheat. And. It tastes like a wheat ale, but it's dark. It's almost like a Negro Modelo, but with a little hint of like blue moon in there. I've never had anything like it before. I'm not sure I'll ever have anything like it again, to be honest, but here I am and I'm gonna drink it down like a happy boy.
1: Yeah, it looks actually pretty good. I like the bottle too. It's got kind of a little funky uh, nose to it or neck. Yeah, it's aesthetically
0: pleasing to the Mm. eye not as much to the tongue
1: but that's okay it's very important in the visual medium that is podcasting for a visually pleasing bottle
0: and the visual medium that is drinking beer (laughs) enough about what we're drinking what did you watch this week dan and actually it's been two weeks since we've done this this might be a very long segment that i have to cut down in post but let's just go for it man tell me about all the highlights what did you read what did you watch what did you take in what enriched you these past couple of
1: weeks oh well yeah if we're gonna do a double week i'll do uh something i read and something i watched so something i read it was something i sent you a couple weeks ago is a particularly spicy uh collection of essays called american exceptionalism and american innocence uh just finished that like four or five days ago basically it covers through a pretty popular concept i think a lot of people know uh called american exceptionalism where you know when other people do bad things it's bad but when we do bad things it's good for some reason Where just this you know we don't have to follow the rules um but then it pairs it with this idea of american innocence which is why i'd never heard of until i read this book which got me really interested in it which is like when all the like the, the things even the U.S. is willing to fess up that are bad things, you know, like slavery, Jim Crow era stuff, the the treatment of the Native Americans, it's always like an aberration or something like a mistake or we, we had good intentions and we just messed up or like Vietnam's another example. And this book uh, takes that idea to task and really does a lot of work of like, you know, if you have an abusive boyfriend or something and he keeps abusing you over and over and keeps saying that's the exception, and he means well like eventually you got to see the pattern and think like maybe that's not an aberration maybe that's built in it's a it's a function not a glitch you know sounds hilarious oh very yeah very uh happy read i every time i listened to it i was in a great mood and just ready to to serve the people at uh the bar i was working at as i was walking there um you must
0: have had really excellent conversation that week.
1: Did you get more tips than you usually do? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's what people love coming down to, uh, to an Irish pub for, is to listen to a, uh, a 30-year-old bartender just uh, rail against American imperialism. That's really how people like to kick back and have a beer after work.
0: <laughs> that's how I do it every single time,
1: a, a delicious
0: Japanese beer. Fortunately for us, uh, the film that we're discussing tonight is exceptional and Canadian, but we'll get to that in a minute. What's, what did I, I'm i going to just kind of rapid fire go through a few. Yeah. Maybe we, I won't deep dive into, into any of these, but these all happen to be spoilers for future episodes, but that's okay. I read a book called Space Odyssey by Michael Benson, and it is not to be confused with a 2001 A Space Odyssey by um arthur c Clarke, because this is a book about the creation of that book and the film that was created in parallel with it i might have mentioned this on the on the pod one other time because this is a big old fat book and i've been reading it while i read other books for like the past three weeks but it's partially a stanley kubrick biography partially an arthur c Clarke biography but mostly just an extensive may exhaustive account of the creation of 2001 a space odyssey and just all of the minutia of just how detail-oriented every single person who really poured their heart sweat and tears into that film really got into uh you know including uh kubrick himself spoiler alert i'm not the biggest fan of stanley kubrick nor that movie and we will get deep into that on a future <laughs> episode but I'm, I'm kind of coming, uh, coming around to it after reading this book. The things that I disliked about Stanley Kubrick are now amplified, but so are the things that I already liked about him and respected about him and his movies and this movie in particular, obviously. Great read if you're at all into the magic of movie making itself or just an incredible account of geniuses at work, just pure un- mm-hmm. unadulterated geniuses at work, regardless if you like their movies or not. Pure unadulterated genius on display in Space Odyssey by Michael Benson. I'm also reading a little novel called Jaws by Peter Benchley. Fun to overpronounce Jaws. It's about a little shark. No, he actually refers to it as a fish. This fish wreaks havoc on a like an upstate New York little coastal summer vacation town. And a Wait. cop and a, a real, real hard-edged fisherman and a marine biologist all team up to stop this thing.
1: That story sounds familiar. I don't know.
0: Anyway, it sort of demonized sharks a little bit. So I tempered that by reading a book called Shark by one Paul de Gelder. He's a mainstay on Shark Week, very popular television program that happens once a year. And he's a guy who uh, was basically a member of what is Australia's Navy SEALs. That's what I'm going to call them, because the American version of Navy SEALs are the exceptional version of them. Um, and... Since he wasn't quite as exceptional as a Navy SEAL, he got partially eaten by a shark while while training, lost a bit of his arm, lost a bit of his leg, and it, the whole ordeal made him fall in love with sharks. And mm. now he is a you know a perhaps a preeminent but at least eminent proponent of conserving shark shark life and and just how vital they are to the ocean ecosystems and what catastrophe there would be if these. Magnificent creatures that have whose evolution was perfected, you know, millions and millions and millions of years ago were eradicated by human beings in about a century. Mm. And I learned so much about sharks. Uh, One of the things that has always rubbed me the wrong way about the movie Jaws, at least in theory, is just to the extent it has demonized sharks in Mm. the the hearts and minds of so many people. And this book addresses that. So I'll be well prepared to talk about the movie Jaws when we get around to doing that podcast. Well, nothing about sharks. I could literally start an entire new podcast about sharks with you, Dan. But tonight, we are returning to my horror roots by talking about a movie that just came out this year. It is my favorite movie of the year, and we're usually movies that come out in January or, you know, a little, a little poo-poo like, like M. Thriegan, which I actually enjoy. But not nearly as much as Skin of a Rink from writer-director Kyle Edward Ball. It stars some people whose faces you don't see, whose voices you barely hear. This is not really a movie about the technical proficiency. Maybe not in traditional sense, but God, this is a a weird, challenging, extraordinary movie. Uh, And it's a movie that gets a lot of extreme reactions from critics, from horror fans online. It seems to be not just divisive but divisive in an extreme where roughly half the people that see it they love it and they report feeling this sort of new blend of nostalgia and terror that they had never experienced before and people talk about how it opened up you know childhood memories and childhood anxieties and affected them very powerfully the other half of the people are like, this is some boring bullshit right. Nothing happens. It's just a bunch of static images of a wall in some house. Not for me. Turned it off after 20 minutes. And that kind of I haven't read a whole lot of opinions that fall between those two. Dan, if you had to pick one of those two extremes, which one do you fall in?
1: Well, I'm actually... Uh, we're going to be doing very little conceding today because this also still remains as a day of recording, uh, September 7th, the best movie I've seen this year. Uh, it's still at the number one spot. Um, and for the reasons that you were just explaining, where I, I think you had seen it... Uh, you'd seen like a sneak preview or something back early... Or maybe as early as 2022. Uh yeah. And we're raving about it. And so when it finally hit theaters out here, I went and checked it out. And it's one... There's two... Uh, theater experience I've ever had where this happened is this, in Inland Empire, where I was begging for it to be over by the time it ended. Like it was, it was like physically harming me <laughs> by by the time uh, I had gotten to the end of it. And so when it finally ended, like just this like wave of relief happened. And it's not that like you know it sounds like oh it was terrible I hated I wanted it over. It's like no that it was working so well on me that by the time it stopped I'm like oh I can like I need to like. shake off whatever this was like i want to be out of this headspace it was it was like so terrifying to me
0: i had a very similar reaction to it where when it ended i felt the same relief as when a really good roller coaster ends which you know is a tried and true metaphor for a movie right roller coaster but no i just mean the terror just a primal instinctual terror that a thrill ride actually gives you and just the endorphins that get released when it's over and you've made it out alive. This movie did that to me more than virtually any other movie that I've ever seen. It felt like the same sweet relief as waking up from an actual nightmare.
1: Mm, That moment
0: that's almost like orgasmic where it's like, oh, thank God that wasn't real. None of that was real.
1: Uh, Even on the flip side, where it's like, then you're kind of in this middle zone where you, like when you wake up from the nightmare, like you're coming to terms with the facts like, okay, I I don't think that was real. I'm pretty sure that wasn't real. (laughs) But like the emotional reality is still there as you're waking up in broad daylight, trying to like come back to the quote unquote real world. But like that weird lingering terror is still kind of gripping onto you.
0: Exactly. And this is all, very intentional, very appropriate. The filmmaker again, Kyle Edward Ball. He cut his teeth on his YouTube channel, where the concept of that channel is folks will send him a description. They'll leave it in the comments. They'll describe a nightmare that they've had in their life, as in as much or little detail as they they care to or are able to. And Kyle recreates that nightmare as specifically as possible. On film and he has many dozens of those on his YouTube channel. Eventually he realized that one extraordinarily common nightmare is you're a child, you wake up in your big house and your parents are missing. You don't know where they are but you know that they're the only source of safety and comfort that you have in your life and they're gone. And what does that feel like when you perceive it to be real in your dream? And so he made a, basically a proof of concept, a 30-minute version of Skinamarink called HECK a few years back. And that gave him the confidence to extend it into a 100-minute feature, Skinamarink. And, and here we are, um, many of us sharing in that very common nightmare of what it feels like to be helpless and alone as a
1: child. hmm yeah, and that's pretty much exactly how I felt when I was watching it. I will say on the uh, slight um, bone I'll throw to the the crowd that's like, ah, I just wasn't for me. I didn't get it. We're in prepping for this pod. It's, it's on Hulu now currently. And I, I watched in the middle of the afternoon. I tried to pull my blinds down. Um, I still have windows in my apartment, which is nice. But in the middle of the afternoon with even I've got a fairly, you know, a good sizable TV, I've got some speakers that are coming in at all angles. Like the experience was diminished. And, and that's coming from someone who loved it and I was excited to rewatch it. Oh, and also <laughs> what was really funny is uh, I'm a peasant, so I got Hulu with ads. So about every thir- like 25 minutes into this like pure mood piece it's just like swing on down to your local Honda dealer for a Honda days and the great deals that we got on this Accord. Which I don't know. Maybe someone much smarter than me could figure out how that's actually uh, thematically resonant, but like it did kind of take me out at bits. And I can understand that was your first foray into this film. Be like, the fuck? It's just pictures of corners. What's going on? Yeah, and I also have had diminishing
0: returns with this movie. I've seen it now four times. The first time was prior to its wide release, an online film festival whose name escapes me now. But uh, you know, because of COVID protocols, many film festivals kind of shifted over to offering their films streaming. And so there was a lot of buzz around Skinner Marine even then. So I watched that and it was just me, my my kitty cat, my uh, Dolby Atmos uh, headset, my big TV, darkness, 11 p.m. I, I left my phone out of the room. I didn't even want to be distracted by my phone because I had heard that this was a powerful mood piece. And yeah, that, that was the ideal environment. And this is one of the few times that I will take this stance. This movie was not as powerful in the movie theater. When I went to hmm. see it, it's you know wide release. I think it was a pretty wide release. I think it was like more than a thousand screens that it was on uh, back in January. It just wasn't the same with the safety and numbers being in public having at least some external distractions from other people being around and not wearing headphones that sort of thing and that's a shame but i will i will now thematically appropriate as it is always hold my initial memory of this film yeah. in a very romantic regard
1: mm-hmm. um and yeah and this and we'll get into it uh as we as we uh, dive in more into the weeds it's, it's definitely one of those films that it demands a lot of active participation in it for it to work.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't even exactly call it suspension of disbelief. That's usually no. what you would say when you really have to give yourself over to the movie. You have to turn off your your analytical mind that's telling you, hey, that's not realistic or that couldn't happen that way. I think you know, you have to g- give, give away your logic to see for a lot of movies. This movie, it's almost like you really have to just except that what you're about to see is very unconventional, is not going to have plot as and characters as its number one and two elements, even though I could argue that there's some pretty, pretty good characterization in this movie. But you really do have to kind of give in to this experimental DIY genre that's trying to evoke something simpler and deeper than emotional resonance to a story Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: what is it that you think separates folks who found this to be just an absolute zero percent enjoyment slog and people like us who did find an appreciation for it
1: so yeah kind of keeping going on on the like you have to actively participate in this and i'm not saying like you know i hate the criticism of films where if you love something and someone doesn't it's like oh well you just didn't look close enough or you didn't get it or things like that I just find that really condescending but that is like in in the moments where it worked the most on me and like I almost think this is sort of a Rorschach test of a film uh, on what parts scare you particularly because in, uh the way that they add grain and the way that they shoot just blank dark spaces um it'll after a few of them or after you know a good half hour 40 minutes an hour of it it start your brain starts getting almost understimulated, and in that understimulation, it tries to find things and that that like warped uh grain that's put in it's added it's, di- it's shot in digital but they put film grain on top of it um your brain starts to like try to grab patterns out of it yeah and i think in that similar like rorschach way like if you're really letting yourself like in the similar classic like childhood fear of the dark like if you're letting yourself find those patterns or try to like let your brain try to find anything in there like you're only gonna find the most horrifying things Um, it's the classic like don't show the monster uh, cliche of uh, horror filmmaking and uh, he does he barely shows jack shit in this which makes it even (laughs) more horrifying
0: yeah and uh, sometimes the film grain even stimulates some what's called pareidolia in you where the Mm -hmm. human brain just instinctively wants to see faces right in darkness and really cleverly. Sometimes there actually is a person in the darkness that you still most of the time cannot see the movie ends with clearly oh, a face God. coming out of the darkness. And what is one of the more disturbing shots in recent horror memory, yeah. in my
1: opinion. And my coming off my forearms. Yeah, yeah. same it. here.
0: Visual <laughs> visual medium of the podcast, but the hair <laughs> on my arm is like spiked like Bart Simpson's head right now. Um, but, so that's the obvious one. But Ball is mentioned when folks ask him on Twitter and stuff. But sometimes there actually are people standing in the darkness that you really can't see at all. And his hope... Was that there would be some subconscious effect than mm-hmm. what you're describing, Dan, and I think that's so fucking cool,
1: yeah, and, cool and I could totally get like if you're not if you're not fully like a hundred percent completely dialed in in the particular way that he wants you to see it, I mean, I'm trying to avoid like, oh they just didn't watch it hard enough or something like that, but if you don't have that sort of suspension of disbelief and that sort of investment in it, which it's I totally understand why you know a series of shots of a suburban home at strange angles wouldn't immediately engross you. Like, If that doesn't pull you in from for the first 15, 20 minutes, yeah, the, the next hour and 20 minutes are just gonna be random artsy shots of uh, phones. Right.
0: <laughs> I have one theory, and this
1: could not be all encompassing, but it
0: may account for a portion of the folks that just can't give themselves to this movie and there is a very recent cutoff of folks where there are folks now who are adults who have buying power who go see and love horror movies who simply did not grow up in a time where it was possible to forget what it was like to to um there are folks who are alive now who have every major or minor moment in their upbringing actually documented on Mm. high definition with high definition images Mm -hmm. that they have saved in the cloud and you know can scroll through at their behest there's something just about how folks who are like millennials or older just don't have that like you can't just pull up a true-to-life image of you know what your house looked like as a child like you, kind of just have to fill in the blanks. Similarly to what you're describing in the moment, actually watching it and having to visually fill in the blanks, it conjures up that sort of nostalgia, but sad nostalgia of just that pain of not being able to quite visualize your childhood, mm-hmm. and makes that sadness fucking scary. And, and there, I'm... I, will oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, uh yeah, and on top of that, um, that that got my wheels turning about like uh this this looks like it's shot from a home video camera that probably was made in like the late 80s or the early 90s or something like that, which is exactly what my childhood memories look like to me because all of my childhood memories were shot from my dorky dad and his dorky camera uh that looked exactly like this film, at least in like film grain quality and uh the the, the quality of the sound. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That that's there's
0: probably a whole lot of people that have a similar connection in that way. I don't quite have that. I definitely have some home movies of my childhood, but not a whole lot. Mm. And I didn't grow up in this sort of kind of stamped out of the mold of uh, suburban track home that this movie. Uh, this movie displays or that something like paranormal activity makes an absolute nightmare out of as Well, we'll get to that movie in great detail later (laughs) on this year. But yeah, for me, it's just like not quite having all of that documentation is really the thing that like makes me like drawn towards this movie and like Mm -hmm. makes it interesting to see Kyle Edward Ball's childhood home, you know, uh, captured in, in such a way. And, I just couldn't imagine having quite the same, you know, just gravitational pull into this movie if I grew up, you know, with a smartphone being able to capture all of the major moments, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I think that's a, that's a pretty good lead into something that that we planned on talking about. And that's the sort of analog, horror or even just the the idea of where we are with analog content in general or purposely uh deteriorated media right we've got we all got these phones in our pockets like my iphone right here has like these three fat lenses it takes these gorgeous images that wouldn't have even been possible with a dslr camera 15 years ago and um So now we're going back to like maybe we crave some distortion, some grain. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that appeals to us, Dan?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been thinking about that a good bit lately with just the quality and the power of uh, our, our ability to document and then narrativize our own lives through our phones you know you see it on like instagram you see it in a lot of like quote-unquote like lo-fi chill beats which i love that shit um (laughs) you see all this uh throwback kind of stuff to an era when uh the ability to make stuff diy in your pocket was just really starting to become a populist thing that you could do like i said like I, I don't know specifically when uh handheld cameras that the average suburban dad could get his hands on when that about was i would say it's about the 80s or the 90s um i'm the same with like who know like Bandcamp. then came out later and anyone can start making their own music but it's at a lower rougher uh, or garage band as well just these pieces of technology where it democratizes the ability for people to make things and it's also gotten cleaner it's gotten crisper it's gotten more uh, Higher fidelity, uh, for lack of a better word, and we tend to, at least people, at least people nowadays, we tend to associate higher fidelity with "quote unquote" truer. If you can see it in higher definition, if the sound is more perfect, that must mean that it is a exact documentation of what happened. Um, and I think that this purposeful deterioration, where, like I had said, this was shot on digital. When it was shot, it probably looked, quote-unquote, way better, uh, way clearer uh, than what we finally saw. But this film is what I would argue is truer to what's going on or what he's trying to communicate. Because even our memories, like when we think back to these times, A, we're going to... filter our memories through uh, the mediums that we can see it. So when you see 90s media, 80s media, you're seeing it through the technology at the time and it's a little deteriorated or, yeah, a record from that time where, you know, they've been remastered. I actually, I kind of like things that aren't remastered because I, I, I do, I'm definitely a card carrying millennial where I like that sort of slight deterioration. I think because it points to the very human element of someone created this and it was imperfect and they tried their best, but there's little bits here and there on the edges that show that not only is this a documentation of a moment, but it's a human's attempt to document the moment.
0: I agree with all of that. And the only thing I would add is I love how this movie represents a true form of what, how memory um, presents itself you know, to us, you know, with through rose-colored glasses, or the opposite, like amplifying the bad as well. The idea that that could be robbed for future generations, where they can't romanticize their own memories, it's really sad. Uh, and to me, this movie is like a beautiful little just reminder of that sort of fallibility of of memory, or unreality of of dreams can kind of strike closer you know deeper into the marrow than just high fidelity actual crisp clear images but anyway we could go on about about that shit what i want to talk about is the happy side of what you're describing and that's the democratization of being able to create Mm. content because this movie is a great example of it there's some other movies that i saw this year i'll talk about one later on when i'm recommending more movies but my second favorite movie, or the one that's kind of battling Skinner for number one in my mind, is The People's Joker mm. by Vera Drew, which is another movie that sort of has a YouTube ish quality to it or an analog quality to it. Now, that movie is just completely gonzo and there's all sorts of creative visuals just flying at you, uh, you know, at a just a hyperactive pace. But it also always has this sort of like, lo-fi aesthetic the entire time like you know oh obviously there's some green screen that the characters are just standing in front of almost like a proscenium and it's got almost like a youtube video essay feel to it but in feature length form and there's some other movies that you could say something similar about and these are movies that um are breaking through into kind of the mainstream not it's not mainstream but at least like having some sort of cultural impact and I think that's just so cool. It gives me a lot of a lot of hope that you know more marginalized voices will have louder voices because mm-hmm. of that democratization. What's your take on those kind of movies that we're we're seeing now that you know clearly were, were birthed from like online content? The,
1: the ones that you are you're citing specifically, I think these are the ones that are going to have the most legs because they understand how to utilize that skill because like I was saying the the most boring version of this would be like a really slick Instagram reel where they have all the technology to do. Like it, it's not very expensive, especially relatively uh, compared to 10, 20 years ago to get good lighting, to get good editing, to, to make everything look just fucking perfect, like a perfect ad. And like, there's a lot of people that uh, do really well with this sort of aesthetic. I mean, you see it all over TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, what have you. Um, But then there's this sort of alternative voice that's going on. Kyle Edward Ball is certainly an example of that. Vera Drew is absolutely an example of that. And it's funny you say that. That is also currently right now my number two favorite movie. (laughs) It's The People's Joker.
0: (laughs) We're We're doing a terrible job
1: at conceding. (laughs) Uh, Because they they, they have this understanding and whenever there's a new technology or a new form of cinematic uh, expression out there, there are the people that kind of get the essence of what can be done with this. And it's using this technology that could be made really slick. And you could essentially ape like Michael Bay with uh, very uh, lower end technology. But there are the people I would say even similar to like the punk movement where they know that they can use this to say much rawer stories and much more um, not so cleaned up, not much rougher around the edges, much more uh, emotionally uh, loud stories. Uh, that uh, strike a much more human tone where you know you see it's really refreshing to see because as you've been seeing the the internet become more and more popularized um, you're seeing sort of a homogenization of how to express yourself online or what kind of ways succeed on platforms like YouTube Instagram what have you Uh, and then you're just seeing the outright rejection of it for a uh, that is not concerned with views clicks likes it's more concerned with like how do i just get what is inside of me out there and and connect with other people through it and i think those two films are beautiful examples of that
0: yeah they're they're more concerned with how do i create this you know evocation of something important or or something impactful or in the, the case of the people's joker i mean god it's it's more than that. It's like, how do I, how do I make a an impact? How do I shine a light on on you know something in society that is vital to talk about? And anyway, stay <laughs> tuned for episode. people people's Joker episode later. But these are my two favorite movies this year, and I, I think that these are movies that are are, are well liked or gonna be well liked by a lot of people. And I think the snowball is gonna continue in that we're gonna see more and more and more breakthrough. Yeah.
1: The- Picture Edward language. snowball.
0: <laughs> 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 that was terrible. I hate you. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, one one thing that I, I, I do want to talk about. We've talked about it in this movie a lot, and that's how this movie outright rejects the commonplace language of the cinema. Right? Like there, there are certain rules you follow around composing your shots about uh, the ways that you cut them together, the ways you use music, the way that you portray characters, the way that they advance the plot. Um, but even just from a visual standpoint, there's certain ways that are quote unquote aesthetically pleasing to frame certain shots or uh, to how long to linger on them, how when they move, when they don't move. This movie sort of outright rejects it for just the sub- subjective point of view of a small child who doesn't have that language in their toolbox that cinematic language and i know that's something that you really love about this movie dan mm-hmm. so why don't you take it away on that
1: yeah um so i've been uh trying my damnedest to to the ground this in something that isn't just like i just took like smoked three bowls i'm just like dude like you ever think about like language, bro? It's fucking crazy. Um, but like I-, I was comparing the uh let's take cinematography is a language. I think that's that's safe to say where when you shoot things certain ways from certain angles, you're trying to express more than just what's on the screen. Like, for instance, you know, you shoot someone from a low angle pointed up that's supposed to mean that person is in a position of power like that's just a a simple one Um, let me
0: interject let me interject one my favorite example of this is something we've talked about when we talked about decision to leave Mm. Um, in that western cinema you often see movement portrayed as a a left to right movement if if a character is being pursued they're pursuing from the left side of the screen to the right, Mm -hmm. where in Asian cinema, you often see a lot of vertical movement. Uh, You often see characters climbing fire escapes, uh, sliding down hills, plunging into the water, rising up through the water. And uh, it's very, very much in line with like written uh, Eastern Mm -hmm. languages versus Western Eastern or Western languages. And that's like a perfect example of cinematography as language, but I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, man, carry on.
1: No, no, that's a a great point. And, and I think that's what's really fascinating about this, uh, this film is I think it deeply understands it because similarly just just take cinematography as a language, like any other language, like English, Spanish, Korean, whatever. Um, when you're born, you don't have that language, you have to learn it. Uh, so you have to learn that when you have these feelings inside or these things that you need to convey to someone else, you need to do it. I have learned to do it in the English language. But there's a lot of theories within uh, people that study language, that people study signs and symbols and how humans interpret them. Uh, When you lock into one language, it does shape the way you see the world because you can only speak it. uh, You can only understand it through the way that you're thinking. You can only think in one language. Uh, Well, most Americans only think in one language. (laughs) Um but uh there's even like the the very surface level difference of like there's a lot of language that have like gendered words for english doesn't where if you have a language where uh like uh gato is a male word so those two concepts are then linked in your mind whether you like whether you're consciously thinking about it or not and the same goes with uh cinematography where you know it's it's a pretty new language as far as human beings have existed what uh Film has only existed for about 130, 140 years, and even then, uh, the idea of cinematography was something that developed later, that has been, you know, played with, has been moved around, um, just like any other language, like we don't speak the same way that people in the 1890s are speaking. Especially with the proliferation proliferation of TV, we're probably one of the first sets of generations, that grow up learning that language where instead of you get to go to the movie theater every once in a while, like you got a TV right in your home and and you are inundated with the visual medium of television, of film, and you learn to see the world in a cinematic way. Um, And with that, just like the uh, the spoken language, uh, kids don't just pick it up in a week. It takes a while and there's kind of in between states where where like, you know, when you talk to Atuia, world well, they're kind of t- doing the little well baby talk, where they're still kind of figuring it out, but it's a little bit skewed, uh, but they're getting there. Like the cinematography, that's why it feels like a child's point of view, because it feels like it, it kind of knows what it wants to look at, but it doesn't quite have the language of cinematography down quite yet. And that's why I always thought it was so fascinating why there's so much of uh old cartoons in this on the, t- on mm. the TV. Because it's kind of showing uh, children learning how to see, how to look, how to, especially in a, a suburban home, which we 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 see a suburban home and it's just this mundane thing. We know exactly, like, oh, the kitchen counter is for this, so I look at it this way. The bathroom is that, so I look at it that way. Couches go here, they face that direction. They should not sit against this window. They should point over here. Kids don't know that. Like, kids aren't architects. uh, And architects don't design suburban homes for the subjectivity of a child. They do it for uh, adults. So if you don't have all that information, uh, a house makes no sense to you. It's this like weird, uh, not grotesque, but it's just this inscrutable space that you don't understand why every like you're starting to understand actually that's a better way you're starting to understand why everything is where it is and you're starting to understand even how to look at these things and i think the camera is constantly doing that which is why i i think it's oversimplified to call this a child's point of view because there's clearly just points where the camera is just not where a child would be <laughs> it's like right. up very high in a back corner it's like okay kid's not that's a freaky ass kid if he's up there um, where a lot of times it is low looking strangely, but this camera and that, uh, that's why I think it does a very good job of putting you in that childlike headspace, where it's looking at something that you understand, like I grew up in a house very similar to this, like a suburban bland nineties home. Sorry, mom and dad, it was a very nice home. Thank you for raising me in there. Uh, but it's something that is so foundational to me that i I understand so deeply because i grew up in it if you kind of kick the uh kick the supports out from under it and look at it similar to like my very earliest memories kind of reflect that where my eyes don't know what to look at quite yet and and it very easily drew me back to these very early memories like what you're saying where people were responding to this film saying is like i remembered shit from when i was like three four five that i had just completely thrown out i had a very similar experience where i started uh remembering I, I what i would argue is my earliest memory when i would think i'm like three or four um and we can get into it later about the nature of memory too where the more i think about this memory now as an adult the more i realize it's it couldn't have been true like It couldn't have happened but the emotional reality of it is there and getting back into that emotional headspace at skinnerink it was uh pretty bad (laughs) i didn't like it after about two hours of it if you haven't picked this up um reading
0: between the lines quite yet Dan and I both find this movie to be petrifying. <laughs> like not, not even just scary, not, not thrilling. Like, Oh my God, that jump scare got me. And don't get me, don't get me wrong. There are a handful of <laughs> absolutely extreme jump scares in this movie, but it was more than that. It, it, it just, it felt off and just uncanny the whole time. And that, that feeling of just sinking into a greater, greater, depth of despair as you know your parents still aren't showing up they're still not showing up this is getting worse and doomier and lonelier throughout the whole movie Mm. the shit is palpable and does not feel good other than through the lens of me a horror lover who enjoys it when a movie can actually succeed in getting under my skin Uh, i was petting my cat bald basically this movie just my little my actual comfort animal next to me she was such a good girl um yeah this movie joins a rare club in my mind of, of, of films that have really got me good yeah uh where we you'll if you've listened to the pod you, you've heard our episode about signs where i talk about that one being very high up there for me in is like just barely below signs but mm. What it did to me but keep in mind i saw signs at 15 i saw skidmering at 35.
1: so which <laughs> one is really at this point
0: <laughs> exactly which one actually wins is being scarier probably skidmering
1: so let me ask you this because while you're saying that 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 got my wheels turning When, and i think that's what foundationally where the fear works is you know when you i'm 30 he's 35 like we know the basics of how the world works or uh, like what things mean like we can walk we are around becoming pretty, adults yeah we like know what the adult world looks like we can navigate it we understand it. there's a confidence that you can have as uh as someone that has already kind of learned the ways of the world just as i hope any one who's uh, anyone who has quote unquote come of age um where you have this confidence of You know things work a certain way. Things mean certain things. Uh, Things are ordered in a particular way and I can act within that. And what this film succeeds at doing is stripping that from you and reminding and putting you back in that place of like, what if you didn't know how anything ever worked and none of it makes any sort of cohesive sense to you and now you have to like, you're completely robbed of your ability to, to grasp at any sort of anchor to 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 know like, oh, well, at least I, I know that like this is over here and I know what this means. I'm confident in this space because I've been here before. But no, it, it robs you of even that like that confidence of experience that you have. It yeah. puts you <laughs> yeah. back into that four-year-old mindset, which that, I mean, th- that has to be one of the most terrifying things about being a four-year-old is you have no experience to draw on. Well, well, this movie robs you of the security blanket of just being a culturally
0: literate cinema goer. Like just mm. the fact that it it flies in the face of convention is so deeply experimental. You don't even have that to anchor you. You don't even have the like. Well, movies like this usually this sort of thing happens in the third act. So I feel like I'm going to be able to take a breath here. I know, you know, I know how this is going to play out roughly. Even if the plot might surprise me here and there. No, this movie completely robs you of anything to grasp onto that could be comforting mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. as far as just your you know your uh, proclivity to the cinematic language it reminds me, it's kind of silly uh because this this makes it this makes makes me sound like I'm going to drag this movie a little bit but it reminds me of one of the best quotes from The Office when uh, I think it's Jared who says it uh, <laughs> he says uh like the it's like the the filmmaker knew that even narrative was a comfort. <laughs> like <laughs> something like I forget exactly what he was talking about, but it's like, yeah, the filmmaker knew that even a narrative was comforting. This movie has a narrative. I want I want I totally reject the notion that this movie doesn't have a plot. Um it, it's not plot heavy. It has a story, has a narrative, even though if it doesn't have a conventional plot, it's not difficult to decide for yourself what happens what happened to these children, kind of what's going on in their lives, that sort of thing. I don't want to get into that because it, it is, as Dan has alluded to several times, a Rorschach test. So if I tell you what I think it means, you're going to learn so much about my mental state and to <laughs> that, it good, that you, know, you know, we don't need to go there. But <laughs> this movie isn't completely devoid of narrative. No, not like at all. You, you can grasp on to point A to point B to point C and what is probably happening to these kids. The other thing I want to outright reject um, and preserve in, you know, pristine audio is that this is not a found footage film. I keep seeing people online saying that Skidmer is a found footage film, and I suspect it might have to do with just that subjectivity of the camera that it does seem to be from a child's point of view at times. There are handheld shots. There are shots that could be perceived as POV but this is not a found footage film this also flies into all of the very well-trod conventions of the found footage film this is something entirely different Mm -hmm. entirely foreign to even that do you agree or disagree on that oh
1: yeah that's like when when you even introduce that idea i'm like people think it's found footage like i don't i don't know why just Um, scan
0: just scan through even like rotten tomatoes like critic blurbs Mm. and just like control f found footage it'll make you sick (laughs)
1: um yeah that's really like i can see from a really surface level viewing of the aesthetic that it does match a lot of found foot like i don't know like some blair witch or paranormal activity and stuff like that where I, i i at least understand why that thought would cross your mind but like i don't know think about it like if i if i had that idea and i thought about it for like 20 more seconds it's like it just doesn't add up it doesn't stand to scrutiny um Now something that I I really liked that you put in there, which uh, how you're saying is like even plot was a comfort, um, is the idea that uh, this film worked so much for us and evoked such a personal feeling in both of us, which is funny because probably in very different ways, if you actually could somehow like lift our skulls up and see exactly what sorts of memories and feelings, I bet they are actually unique to us. but the idea, and it's something that cinema has always uh, been taken to task with is, or, or just narratives in general, is that like human life is not, we narrativize human life. Human life is not narrativized. Like we go back and we make sense of it. Um, but something that is pure affect like this, that has minimal plot, like notice how we haven't even gone through the plot because it's it's not that it's beside the point it's just taking a back seat to this like pure uh affectual uh experience that you're having um and i think i think that like a lot of like my favorite literature does that too like i, I keep thinking of the uh the the william faulkner quote um that uh, that could apply to this really well where it's like uh what the past isn't even dead it's not even past," where like the this thing that we you and i thought like we didn't even think about it that we we still have this like inner scared four-year-old in us that we're just walking around and it still exists at all time this past that we have accumulated through the last you know the last handful of decades um all 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 it took was one you know hour and 40 minute movie and all of a sudden that shit just got ripped right back up to the present and it wasn't through a story of a like a you know a traditional narrative of a four-year-old going through a scary experience or something like that it was just you sitting there in a home for a couple hours and all of a sudden you're back um and i, and I think i really like that idea that this film askews narrative to get at something more true to how we experience human life how we expect yeah. how we Think about our past memories or past experience that we have how we order them how we make sense of them like um i was thinking about this idea of a lot of people report that they don't remember 2020 very well at all um Mm. because a combination of like their traumatic experiences so you don't think about it so those memories fade away or um there's the idea that when you have when your life is like the same thing over and over and over time tends to actually move faster where um having novel experience actually gives you a sense that your my f- life is moving slower and you remember the moments of transition and change that's why everyone's uh remember so finally their teenage years because that's that's all that your teenage years was was uh you know liminality and change and, and disruption um and and i think this movie dabbles in that uh, in a really interesting way at that how we actually uh deal with human memory not the way that um, a lot of cinematic tropes deal with human memory.
0: Beautifully said. Oh. Yeah, absolutely beautifully said. And I would even extend that to. Oh boy, this might be this might be spicy. Oh boy, but <laughs> it is in the cinematic tradition, even fundamental to the idea of cinema itself. Or, or going way, way back um, to try to capture dreams on screen to Mm. try to uh at least capture the feeling of what it's like to dream all the way to the point of actually trying to capture the literal aesthetics of what many people would uh you know experience while while asleep right Mm -hmm. um lots of filmmakers have done that one of the earliest quotations you know from a uh you know a turn of the 20th century cinema goer was like, it, that was like dreaming while awake. Hmm. And even a master like Kurosawa still is shooting his dreams in the language of the cinema that he didn't define that he expanded upon and mastered, but he's not shooting dreams that his film that's called dreams like a dream he's shooting it like a movie representing a dream right this movie actually looks like a dream itself
1: mm-hmm. yeah and there, there are so few filmmakers or authors or playwrights or anything that can they can really capture that i mean i think this is actually one of the examples where i, I i roll my eyes a lot when anyone when, when you watch any weird movie and you see like half the people are calling it lynchian um this one it actually i think deserves at least a lowercase l Lynchian uh seal yeah. approval on it because i think lynch is excellent at getting uh the the logic or the illogic or the alternative logic of dreams that is just like this pure affect where it's like if you're if you're thinking about how it all ties together you're already doing it wrong um you just kind of got to understand the the emotional ties or the the moods that are getting together because at least for me that's what dreams feel like where it's like I think of it as my 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 subconscious searching for representations of abstract ideas that like your brain has been ruminating with all like for the last 20 or the, the last waking day that you've been in and and then throwing it back at you which for some reason I don't know maybe for me for some weird reason or another, like I don't know, fear of being inadequate represents a lobster for me. I don't fucking know. <laughs> um,
0: but it, 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 it fear is fear of being so- adequate <laughs> is also represented as a lobster for Yorgo parents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, a film! I'm so excited to see uh, when Poor Things comes out. Um, but I think that's yeah, that's what this film succeeds at, and what like when people say dream like filmmakers, I think that's what they succeed at so well. Is this like? Weird, uh, dissociative, um, coupling of s- uh, signified and signed that just try to point at abstract things that we cannot throw on screen, uh, very concretely. Where I think you are right, where I did, I watched Kira Sawa's Dreams a couple months ago, months ago, and I fucking loved it, I thought it was incredible. But I think you're right in saying that it wasn't, it was strangely, wasn't that dreamlike, it was yeah. very he's almost suffering from success a little bit where he's just so good at the technical craft at composing an image that he can't help himself but make everything beautiful and crisp (laughs) right maybe his dreams look like that maybe that's why he's a good filmmaker i don't know actually that you bring up a solid point in that
0: (laughs) i wouldn't be at all surprised if kurosawa dreamt
1: in just beautiful sepia
0: watercolors
1: (laughs) So are like Wes Anderson literally. literally. Dreams, yeah, like are Wes Anderson's dreams just like really meticulously crafted symmetrical images. Yeah, pastel symmetrical images
0: <laughs> that are just so whimsical and 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 delightful and hilarious. Yeah. Probably.
1: <laughs> Scorsese dreams of everything. So, Scorsese's dreams would stress me out. Like it'd just be whip pans all over the place. Yeah. Damien Chazelle dreams
0: of white people inventing jazz. <laughs> oh boy i don't want to get too far down that that rabbit hole Um, (laughs) let's take a little bit of a sidetrack from the movie itself and, and just talk about maybe what this movie is grasping at and i think that there is something to be said and i'm gonna I'm going to tee this up as if it wasn't your idea, Dan, so you can smash it like it is. Um, (laughs) But this movie does point at this like millennial desperation to like have this sort of, well, to have a middle class at all. (laughs) We got to grow up seeing in the nineties and normalizing in the nineties. And there is this just inherent frustration for like 90% of people our age that those sort of like, you know, just the, the simple things that like nuclear household that, you know, that that little box on the hillside made it ticky tacky. All that stuff is just out of reach for so many people on a societal level. And um, this movie uh, sort of like rubs it in our face a little bit and, yeah. and makes it terrifying. Uh, what, what did you have in mind when you kind of brought that up earlier?
1: So I was thinking about uh, this movie and how it it falls into our current wave of nostalgia. And especially, I'd say we're probably eh, towards the end of the 80s nostalgia wave, and probably we're about to see a big 90s nostalgia wave. And this, this film is what? Uh, I think it's specifically said what year is this supposed to be set in? It's the mid or early 90s.
0: Yeah, just knowing the age of the director himself, he's roughly your age. He might be like a year or two younger than you. So mm-hmm. whatever you were like four. Okay,
1: okay. Okay. Um, and it it points to something of what, why do people want nostalgia? Why why are what what's appealing to us? Why is like why are we going back to Star Wars again? Why is there another Indiana Jones movie that came out? What like what Stranger Things scratching? Why does it like why do forty year old men have Funko Pops of things that were made for seven year olds? Um, and and it got me thinking it's like okay, so that's like the commodified version of. Uh, of nostalgia that you can just like cash in on member berries pretty much where it's like, Oh man, like I remember being a kid. And then I'm thinking about the, the particular era and sort of the ending of a particular era of nostalgia. So I'll actually be really curious what nostalgia looks like in about 10, 20 years because the nineties is such like an interestingly, specifically like, yeah, an interestingly specific time where you got the chunk of time between the fall of the Berlin wall and you got what's called the end of history. Where pretty much it's, uh, there's like the celebration of like the the West led by America and, and you know, free market capitalism has overcome uh, the, uh, the Soviet and the socialist bloc. So it's sort of this like celebratory or back padding period of time where it's like, like, we have proven ourselves to be correct through uh, just through how things played out. And um, now there are no big challengers. to The U.S. It's now a unipolar world. We are uh, we're, we're just going to keep riding in the sunset, kind of just like tweaking things a little bit here and there. And it's all going to be good. Everyone's going to get on this gravy train. And when they mean the end of history, they mean the end of like giant upheavals and revolutions and and like giant paradigm shifts like we found the perfect paradigm. Now we just need to tweak um, and then that uh, that ends. in in 2011 in September um, where it shows that like violently and in a horrifying way that like no the rest of the world is still going on and uh, this this particular order has consequences it has blowback that's uh, that uh, we're now still wrecking reckoning with fucking 21 years later Um, but in this chunk of time between about 91 to 2001 It was this kind of weird Goldilocks era where we thought we won and everything's great. And uh, the middle class hadn't totally bottomed out yet. Now you're uh, you, you could historians have looked back at the policies of the 70s, 80s, 90s and showed how it's reflecting, you know, why we can't buy houses today. But we were still on kind of the back end of that. American dream was accessible to enough of the population where we could still believe the fantasy of it. And. And this is also one of the first generations. Now we've grown up. The kids that are born in the late ni- '80s and the early '90s, we've grown up. We're now the age of the parents in Skinner ring probably. Those parents are what, thirty-ish in their thirties, um, sure. Yeah. Which, which is true for me too. When my dad was thirty, he owned a house, he had three kids and a wife, and he had a job that was of a similar caliber to the one that I've been working for the last four years. uh I could have none of those things right now. Um, I, it's just the market is just not there to live a life that affords that kind of stuff. And and that all goes to say is like, we're one of the first generations that uh, through a lot of economic measures, we're actually going to wind up doing worse than our parents. Where for the last like 100, 200, I don't know if I wanna go 200 years, but I know at least for the last 100 years, every generation had done materially a little bit better than the one before. And so I think that's what part of that nostalgia that can be sold back to us through fucking Funko Pops and Marvel movies and Stranger... I don't want to shit on Stranger Things. I feel bad shitting on Stranger Things. Uh, but, like, the, the you know, childhood media that has been revived... I mean, we kind of saw it with the Super Mario movie where, like, 40-year-olds were out just battling to the death over it and on Twitter when it's a movie made for kids um, because that was, like, the last, quote-unquote, good times that we had and our... Our view of the future, if you go back to the Asteroid City episode, I kind of talk about it, too, where it's like our view of the future is only getting grimmer and grimmer. Our imagination of what's ahead of us is no longer very good. Uh, and it's because we see the last 30 years have only played out not in a positive uh, trajectory. Um, you know, we've seen several, several, not several, but multiple financial crashes. Yeah, nine eleven. 11 and so this, this yearning to go back to this period when things felt simpler, not only because we were children, but because uh, just the general American culture felt simpler because it felt like we won and we were doing victory laps. Um, we we want to go back to that. And I mean, there's an argument to be made, which I agree with, that we never won. We never were on the victory lap. We just had very good PR. Um, <laughs> and Skinnerink, I think does a very good job of pointing to the real pain that this nostalgia is coming from and that it's not happy member berries and it's not like oh i i just like these old things because it was back when i was a kid and things are happier it's that like the party's over we're we're living through uh, it's a stupid tweet that i've seen it's like you know, uh, the 20th century was the fuck-around century, and now we're in the find-out century, and we can't go back, and we want to go back to the fuck-around century.
0: What an absolute, just high point to end our Skinner Inc. discussion on. I don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> new segment that I want to make sure that we bring up for every single episode we record from here on out. Would Marty that is Martin Scorsese. He's Marty to us because we've seen some of his movies.
1: We know him on a first-name basis.
0: Would Marty consider *Skin and Marink* to be cinema with a capital C?
1: Do I go first? Yes. Uh, yes. Capital Y. Yes. Uh, and for a lot of the reasons that we have spelled out, that they like any good, any good piece of capital C cinema. TM at the end. It grounds itself in something that is already established and known very well this is at its core a haunted house story we've read it a thousand times we've seen it a thousand times um but from uh doing your classic haunted house story it uses cinematic tools to get to the essence of why does a haunted house story scare us or why, do, why does a nostalgic haunted house co- story scare us? And it uses u- tools unique to the medium to do that, which I think makes this cinema.
0: I would add that while I did refer to this as a roller coaster ride, it's not the kind of roller coaster you would find at an amusement park.
1: <laughs>
0: he said that Marvel movies are like, more like a really good amusement park ride. This movie is not exactly amusing. This movie kind of coaster I want to get on to a much deeper truth. And uh, the only thing that, you know, I, I don't, I have, I don't know enough about his point of view on like quote unquote content creation and you know how commoditized online content is, but I could imagine him seeing this and, and pigeonholing it into a certain DIY camp that, that almost delegitimizes it Mm. i i i could i could see i could understand that that point of view as well and um but you know he hasn't talked about it which kind of surprises me because it you know did get a lot of a lot of traction but you know he's got a lot of movies to see and to make Mm. i would would love to know what he thinks about this movie because it's such a freak show movie and he likes freak show movies he's made some pretty abstract things himself um But yeah, I think from here on out, would Marty consider this cinema? Quick little capper here. (laughs) Let's make some recommendations. Let's make some recommendations. Sweet, I'm gonna tap right back into my time in the theater and say that as far as popular plays go, the closest thing that I can think of that captures a similar aching nostalgia, uh and through like specific form on stage is the glass menagerie by tennessee williams and i don't recommend watching the movies or film diversions it's been filmed either as just a shot on stage or an actual movie type movies uh, several times over the years none of them are very good i actually think reading it kind of conjures up the nostalgic feelings even more than actually seeing it but Tennessee Williams starts the play with just the most poetic stage direction I have ever read. And I love good stage direction. I talked about it on the Asteroid City episode. But something that has always stuck in my mind and sticks in a lot of people's minds, to be fair, it's something that a lot of people remember Tennessee Williams saying, is he said, memory takes a lot of poetic license. And this play is memory. So don't confine yourself to using real plates or eating real food on stage. You don't hmm. need to see a realistic representation of the apartment that they're in. Um, you don't need to see characters looking at each other while they're speaking to each other. You can break the fourth wall a little bit. You can you can play the emotional internal reality without uh, really bogging yourself down in the external stimulus. And uh, when the play's done right, that way it's really gorgeous, it even, there is very preoccupied with the author's childhood home and looking at every corner of it through the lens of his memory as a youngster and i think that skidmer and the glass menagerie have a lot of common dna i think that tennessee williams probably would have considered it cinema as well
1: hmm. yeah you've been you've been uh, feeding me like some tennessee williams quotes and and material through the last uh, week or so. And he's always someone that I knew was a, a great name in the medium. And I just had never taken the time to check him out, but just to yeah. at me, I'm like, I don't know why he's not priority one, two and three for me to like really dive in on. I'm really excited to check out his stuff.
0: Yeah. Start with the glass menagerie. Just reading it. Um, he, he literally does also call into uh, just puts into sharp focus. The fact that he's writing a play um about the late 20s but he's writing it in like the mid 40s mm. and obviously there was some economic trouble ahead yeah. in the mid to late 20s and he talks a lot about the the dissolving middle class even then mm. and uh he he, may, he says it in a very poetic way but he talks about how the, his play yearns for a more optimistic time when the economic future seemed more certain
1: oh interesting it's wild
0: man yeah you got you got to read the glass menagerie it's also just in the opening stage directions that are usually uh usually you know the playwright is saying just describing what the set looks like or or what the style of the play is but he talks about these things instead (laughs) uh and it's it's amazing what do you recommend dan
1: i love that um so my my like stuff since I've been born is a film that we have discussed. Um, I don't know when we'll release it, but we have it somewhere in the the annals of our chit chats. Is uh, a Chilean film called The Wolf House, um, and it shares a lot of similar DNA, uh, at least uh, formally, with Skinamarink, where you're they're really playful with space, they're really innovative with how to use a house to tell a story. Um, and it, it also takes on this childlike, uh, point of view. Now it does it in a very, uh, different way, which I don't want to say much more about. All I would say is watch it, then quickly do a Wikipedia on it and figure out what it got drawn from and then get ready to take like four or five showers. Cause you're going to feel nasty. Um, but no, even without that uh, historical, uh, the, ugh, ugh, yeah, I got chills again. Ah! Uh, <laughs> and also, we never even talked about that. The sound design of Marink* also works really well, which um, uh, the Wolf House also does very similarly. Um, and another one where we're talking houses, we're talking childlike POVs, and we're talking spooky, spooky times is uh, Haosu, uh from uh, Obayashi from uh, 1977 and this one is a little bit zanier goofier almost scooby-doo in its uh in its aesthetic but it also really fully commits to like what scares a child like what what's on a child's mind and like how does that relate to adults like adults still have that in them where all the way to the point where obayashi like uh put his kid as one of the writing credits because she was so heavily involved in like the crafting of this film um, so I think that would be a great, like, freak show, weird house, triple feature, all three of those. Skinamarink, Wolf House, House Who.
0: Amazing. Uh, my second recommendation is another movie from this year. Uh, another another movie that I quite liked, even if it isn't, like, even in my top five of 2023. I think that it needs, it probably will be uttered in the same breath as Skinamarink for years to come. And it's... Uh, The Outwaters by Robbie Van also has this sort of DIY aesthetic, but it is more of a traditional found footage movie. It goes to really dark places that do descend down into a more abstracted, almost psychedelic, illogical, experimental phase of the movie. The, The sound design is just utterly chilling, just totally full, rings totally true until it doesn't and the uncanniness of the sound design once it takes a turn um it's very haunting um skidamarink people's joker the outwaters uh we're all going to the world's fair All share this this sort of diy youtubey type of aesthetic they're all also by queer filmmakers Mm -hmm. which there might be something to be said there that marginalized folks have have to rely on this sort of DIY scrappiness to make a feature film. I don't want to get too too much into the kind of the societal woes that that sheds a light on, but I think uh, it should be said that there is a robust crop of I don't know older Gen Z, younger millennial, queer filmmakers that are just using their tools to make radical shit. Yeah, and most of it's horror, but some of it's not and uh they all they all have some common bonds and uh all of those folks are also very fun on twitter
1: <laughs> so follow all of them on twitter on top of us as well
0: yeah absolutely for concessions i'm jared
1: and i'm dan and try to avoid getting skinamarinked.